We're in a series on worship. Let us draw near biblical worship and the warming of the soul. This is part nine. Purity of worship and the unity of the body of Christ. That's the topic today. And the text is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Hope you have your Bible with you in one form or another. Always bring your Bible to church. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, probably thinking of like under the old covenant, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the, interesting phrase, to the, the hell of fire. So, it, being that all of that is true, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there. Just leave it. Leave it there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you, you will, look at those words, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Let's pray. You, you, you tell this story to show how lives like ours end up in bondage, how free people become imprisoned, even if they never see the inside of a jail. And so, your Holy Spirit, as always, you want to use the truth of your word not to, not to bind us up with restrictions, but to free us in what real liberty looks like. And so, we want to hear that. And so, help us, Lord Jesus, as we work through this text, that it would also work its way through us. We do love you. We saw that text that Pastor Chris read and the 30-some-odd times it's repeated that there should be praise. There shouldn't be silence. There should be praise to God. And it's not a recommendation. It's a command. A command not driven by your ego that just has to be constantly fed and patted on the back, but because our lives only find freedom 
from idols and addictions and bondage when we prize and praise you above everything else. Help us to do that. May your house always be filled with praise. In Jesus' name, and the church said. This passage from the teaching of Jesus, it opens up a slightly different emphasis on the whole subject of worship. That's what we've been doing, kind of working through the the theology, the big principles of, of worship. Isaiah, the throne. It's not an emotional thing. Worship is coming before the throne of God. It, it, it can never be used to compensate for stubborn wills and hearts that aren't yielded. Worship has to be according to instruction. And we looked at Uzzah, who reached out to study the ark, steady the ark that was on the cart, and it was never supposed to be on a cart. And you see the judgment of God. It's not enough to be sincere. You have to worship according to instruction. By the way, that's Old Covenant and New. It is never the case, in spite of the fact that it's almost, it is almost universally believed. It is the biggest lie in the contemporary church that under the New Covenant, we just get to worship however we want. It's a matter of just our hearts, however we feel is appropriate. It's not so. We'll get more into that. And then we looked at Jehoshaphat two weeks Worship in the battles of life. Remember? The three nations coming against Jehoshaphat. God says, tell you what you do. Get, get the singers and the musicians. Go out in front and, and praise me. And you won't have to fight this battle. Worship isn't an emotional binge. It's not a charismatic thing. It has to do with victory in life. Winning the battles of life. The things that march on your life. Worship is related to that. Today we kind of turn a corner in this New Testament text and we learn that not only is worship valuable as we saw looking at Jehoshaphat, but it's also fragile. It it, it can be hindered. It can be plugged up in the believer's life. It can be neutered of spiritual dynamic and power. It can just be motions. So indirectly, this passage gives Jesus evaluation of the importance of worship because he he cautions that we must let absolutely nothing stifle pure worship in our hearts. It's, It's expansion. It's expression in our lives. Puts up these, I think, five kind of red flags in this passage. Point number one. Sorry, it's a long point. I mean, the point itself is long. In awareness of our inclination towards self-centeredness and carelessness in worship, Jesus summons our attention to the importance of coming, coming to the altar of God. It's in that 23rd verse, Matthew 5, 23, offering your gift at the altar. I know, I know that our patterns of worship don't correlate uh, exactly with those of the Old Covenant Jewish system that Jesus addresses in these words. 
But there is still something. There's a principle that is pivotal to these words that does carry over as an abiding principle. The details don't carry over. The principle carries over into New Testament worship. So Jesus endorses the importance of of this specific place where people come to present themselves to the Lord. When you come to the altar with your gift. Not when you come to the mall, the drugstore, the bank, the altar. When When you come there, that time and place. Because we live in a badly fallen, distorted, and very distracting world, and because we only, we only gradually unwind the tentacles of, of our culture from clinging to our hearts and minds, we, we need to remember that it was from the very beginning, from creation. It was God's idea to call people to distinct, separate, specific times and places of worship. And he did this even though both he and we knew that he was present everywhere all the time. So in other words, the the fact that we could know him, love him, adore him, serve him, Everywhere, all the time, in everything we did, in spite of the fact that that is absolutely true, it didn't do away with the need for specific times and separate places where we would be exclusively devoted to worship. Right from creation, God established, you know it, a separate day, one in seven, when people would turn their minds and hearts to him. Even though God walked with Adam in the cool of the day every evening. In the evening. I don't know what that, how that worked. A separate day where hearts and minds were devoted to him. It was not just that people would worship him on that day. That, that, that's true, but the important point is they would not devote their attention to anything else in quite the same way that day. In other words, there would be a separation from the rest of life so they could be exclusively devoted to worship in a way they couldn't be the other six days of the week. Think about that for a minute. This special day each week it wasn't designed to teach that God could be worshipped anywhere all the time. That's true. But this day was designed to teach that God was different from everything else they thought about, everything else they gave their time to, everything else they gave their affection to, everything else that consumed their schedules. And that distinction, that distinction between God and everything else, it would dissolve without specific times, Places for even the most godly people if they didn't have that separate call to worship God specifically at appointed places and times. God has always established among his own people 
places where he would be worshipped. Read the book from cover to cover. The tent. The tent of meeting. The tabernacle. Then came the temple. In the New Testament, they first went to synagogues, then to house churches, then to larger established buildings and congregations. The design of the place wasn't the important feature. The important point was that people would, in this way, be forced, they'd be forced to leave other places and other things and other activities to give undivided attention to God. Now, we don't live under the Old Covenant. We know that the Holy Spirit has come to make the presence of God portable in our lives. We all know that Jesus is just as much with us at the office as he is in church. That's true, isn't it? Just as much with you at the office as at church. And no one with any understanding would deny that truth. In him we live and move and have our being and so forth. So, so I, think, I think it's safe and accurate to say that at least in a sense, all of life is worship. I've heard people say it. They don't usually explain it, but I think it's true. At least it can be worship. I can think about him and honor him and love him and ought to think about him and love him and honor him. Everywhere I go, I worship at work, I worship at church. That idea is, is true as far as it goes. But there's a problem. The problem is, in the thinking of many Christians, it's, it's, just, it's just the words just come bouncing out of our mouths without thinking about them very much. It's true. I worship at church. I worship at work. But the worship of those two places isn't the same. That's the important point. I don't worship at work the way I'm called to worship at church. And I don't worship at church the way I'm called to worship at work. There's something specifically special about each of those. At work, I offer up my daily tasks in service and in witness in a way that I... Never do in the church. Fair enough. But there is something special and something fueling about the way I worship at church. It's the worship at church that enables and feeds the mind and the will to worship at work. I worship at work because I faithfully worship at church. The general worship is possible because of the specific worship. The worship of God everywhere in general is the natural fruit of frequent, consistent worship of God somewhere specific. What I'm saying is... You need the bones of worship to support the life of worship. That's why we worship on the Lord's Day. The first day of the week. We don't come together anymore to worship on the last day 
Because we're not looking forward in hope to our redemption in the way they were in the Old Covenant. We look forward to the completion of it when Jesus comes again, but we're not looking forward to that sacrifice for sin the way they were in the Old We look back to it. So in terms of God's atoning sacrifice for sin, we're not living in an age of promise. We're, li- we're, we're, we're looking back at what he accomplished for us. It's an age of fulfillment, living in the strength of the resurrection of Jesus and the life of the Spirit. And worship on the Lord's day, it fills up the strength on the first day of the week to prepare and enable the worship for the other six. But church, listen. We are still called to come, come to the altar, to keep specific times with God, to fill our lives in a different and special way with the worship of this specific time and place. And the Lord's Day is the key piece in this devotional worship structure. In heaven, we won't need it. That's why I read Revelation 21. The New Jerusalem, John says there's no temple there. We won't need it anymore. But while we're on earth, while we travel in a way that's filled with temptation and self and materialism and clutter and distraction, we will constantly need specific reminders. Freedom of the Spirit is not freedom from habits and disciplines of holiness. It's it's freedom. It's the power to renounce anything that would keep us from walking in disciplined habits of worship. Point number two. The beauty of nutritional habits of worship can be emptied by things we cannot see with the physical eye. Look at Matthew 5.22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of of fire. Who but Jesus can get away with preaching like this? He starts his lesson with a man coming to the altar. And he ends up warning about the the fires of hell. That's quite a distance to cover in a 30-second story. And you can't help but get the impression that, that some kind of hellfire, you, you, you picture it, some kind of hellfire was a distinct possibility in the mind of Jesus for this worshiper. Wow. Who but Jesus can talk like that? It's very unacceptable. in spite of the fact that he was right there where he was supposed to be offering his gift. 
It takes quite a bit of nerve to tell this story. And, and you can't help but wonder, okay, okay, Jesus, what are you, where, where are you driving with this? Do I, do we, do we perhaps have too little concept of how dangerous anger can be to our souls? This is an age, I don't know if you've noticed it, everybody protests everything. We're very quick to tell the whole world what we don't like and why we don't like it. And we're, we're very upset about it. Is, is, is Jesus saying, you know what? You're mucking up your soul. You're mucking up your soul. Do, do we stop to consider, even when we worship, that God sees everything that I carried in my heart this morning into the sanctuary? Is it, is it too easy to forget that? That he sees more than closed eyes and raised hands? She's right here. Do we ever carelessly allow ourselves to think that the visible is more important than the invisible in the shaping of our destinies? Or, or do we ever allow ourselves the luxury of foolishly dreaming that the offering of our gifts, our resources, maybe even our attendance, it ought to be enough to cancel out anything that isn't quite right in the rest of my life? Is that why he tells the story? Jesus identifies this as the fatal mistake that can creep into worshippers' hearts. He tells the story the way he tells it because he says stuff like this actually happens in Cedarview Community Church. Worship is precious, but it's not indestructible. It can get all fouled up. Three, point number three. God wants to use the specific habits of worship to purify my mind and my heart. It's in that 23rd verse, Matthew 5, 23. So here's the important words. So when you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, that's there, right, at the altar. And there you remember. Your brother has something against you. If you're an underliner, underline those words. And there, remember. He comes to the altar. He's not thinking about it when he comes. But there he remembers this issue with his brother. He didn't remember it before. He wasn't thinking about it. It wasn't like this was constantly on his mind, but, but as he came to the altar, as he came to the place, the specific place of worship, there he remembered this situation with his brother. Is that a coincidence? It can't be because it's not the first time we saw it. Think back. Think back. Exactly the same thing happened to the prophet Isaiah. Remember? 
He comes and he sees the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up. And he sees these angelic creatures covering their heads, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when he sees that, I'm a man of unclean lips. <laughs> now, he didn't get out of bed that morning thinking about his unclean lips, right? But what made him think about that? He comes before the Lord. And when he comes before the Lord, oh, I got a foul mouth. I don't speak the truth. I'm unkind in what I say. I'm not a person of integrity with my words. But it's not like he was just lingering about this all the time. There's, there's something about seeing the holiness of God. He comes before the Lord, specifically before the Lord, and all of a sudden he sees what he didn't see before. That revelation came when he came to the Lord in worship. Can I tell you? Don't tell anybody else. It's a secret. I get asked a lot. People will come up and they'll, they mean well, they ask questions and they'll say something like, what is, what's, what's the hardest thing about pastoring? Sometimes they'll say, what do you like the least about pastoring? I'm not going to tell you the answer I give to that. But when they say, what's the hardest thing? What is the hardest thing, the hardest thing about being a pastor? I'll tell you what it is. I'm going I'm to do it right now. You're going to witness it. The most difficult thing about being a pastor is when you stand and you say something that you know is from God's word. You know it is absolutely true. And please, I don't mean this in a condescending way at all. I'm just like you. And you know, say it as often and as clearly as you want. And most of the people will, even if they nod, they don't really, they're not going to believe what you're telling them. And that's what I'm about to do. I'm going to say something that is crucially important, and I know full well that many, many, many people in this room will just think, isn't that sweet that, that the pastor thinks like that? Here it is. Coming to church is more important than 99% of Christians think. The simple habit of coming before the Lord regularly and consistently will activate the cleansing work of God in your life like nothing else. Even when you don't think anything is happening. People who aren't careful about cultivating deep, consistent habits of worship will soon lose the capacity to identify and respond seriously to their own sin. I'm telling you, it's the truth. Without worship, people won't see their sin. They will see it in others, but they won't read their inner selves accurately. It's when Isaiah comes before the Lord... 
It's when this person is at the altar and there remembers. Something clicks, something happens, something dials in. Just in the act of coming to that place at that time where you're supposed to be in worship. And a lot of people will have a hard time swallowing that, and it's only because our North American Christianity is rapidly becoming a shop for what you like, don't bother with anything that doesn't suit your tastes kind of religion. Here's the truth. I'm telling you the truth. People will keep their lives spiritually cleaner, have fewer problems in their marriage, keep their family closer to the Lord, draw closer to Jesus themselves, develop a stronger prayer life, get more out of God's Word, all without the addition of any seminars, blogs, podcasts, books, conferences, or experts, if they just came to church more. Do you believe me? Without doing anything else, God would... Like Jesus taught in this message of worship at the altar, God would reveal his will. He would show them what they should do next. He would keep them from sins that they don't even see coming yet that are going to trip them up down the road next week, next month, next year. And here's the tragedy. Many people have a hard time believing that. God has designed coming to specific places and times of worship to quicken the pulse in regard to pursuing holiness. He will work to keep relationships clean. That's what this text is all about. Think about the application to marriage, raising children. Point number four. Jesus warns about the futility of disobedient worship. 5.24 Leave, leave your gift there before the altar. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then, come and offer your gift. Look at these verses. Blessed are the merciful... For they, this isn't automatic for everybody, for they shall receive mercy. Look at this one. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Cut it any way you like. Merciful people receive mercy. Those who have forgiven their debtors receive forgiveness. The idea isn't unclear. It's just a little more blunt than we're comfortable hearing. Why must this worshiper go first to his estranged brother before he continues in worship? Well, because just as surely as it was worship that opened his eyes to the situation with his brother, that worship will die if he doesn't deal with the situation with his brother. Are there people you don't like talking to in this church because of something that happened in the past? In 
And if you don't want to talk to them, God doesn't want to talk to you. Did you see it in those verses? If you don't want to talk to them, God doesn't want to talk to you. Do you want to live like that? How many, how many praise songs, how many prayers simply bounce off the ceiling because people ignore this? First go, then come. Five. Good worship is best expressed when it's accompanied by a rush to obedience. Five, 25, and 26. So come to terms. There. There's the adverb. Come to terms quickly with your brother while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, you'll be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you, you will never get out. Do, do you see the contrast between that and that? He uses these two time words. Very carefully, Jesus does. Both of them are important. One we've already looked at in verse 24. I'm going to my brother first. Before I try and just sweep it aside and move on with my relationship with Jesus. But, I, but I'm not just to go first. I'm to go fast. Think of the two words. Don't just do this first. Do it fast. Come to terms with your accuser. Quickly. Why quickly? Well, if you have to ask that question, you've just never dealt with sin in your life. The longer you wait, the less likely you are to repent. That's why. I'm speaking with someone just recently about a situation, a particular temptation that this brother had. We talked and talked and talked, and I finally, I don't know where it came from, and I said to him, when, when you're tempted to do that, you have, you have five seconds to say no. That's a good rule. When, when you're tempted in any area of life, you have five seconds to say no. After that, you're going to start justifying. You'll start accommodating. Well, Ron, Ron Dyer's no holier than I am. So-and-so, they do this all the time. You have five seconds to say no to temptation. And, conversely, when God says do something, go quickly. When God tells you to do something, you have five seconds to say yes. And after that, you'll find reason. You know, I'm really pretty busy right now. I'll take care of it later. The five-second rule. Five seconds to say no. There, there you sit. You know, no one else is home, and there you are in the family room, and you're clicking through the channels, and... Boom, there it is, and it doesn't belong in a Christian home. You've got five seconds to turn that off, or you're not going to. You're having that conversation with someone, and you know full well you said something that wasn't appropriate, it wasn't right, it was unkind, it was unloving, you're mad, you walk away, you've got five seconds to go and make that right, or you're not going to. 
You know you should apologize to your wife. You've had a big blow up at the table. Whatever went wrong, you got five seconds to say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm sorry. To make his point stick, Jesus puts these two ideas in juxtaposition. Note how the parable ends. You will never get out. Go quickly. You might not end up in jail, but you will end up in bondage. You'll never get out. Go get out fast or you won't get out. Act quickly or there are lengthy consequences, according to Jesus. You get the impression, don't you? Like, keeping out is easier than getting out. It is never safe to worship God with an impure heart. That kind of worship is dangerous because God takes particular displeasure in that kind of sin. The kind of sin that grieves God the most in Don Horbin's heart is the kind of sin that God has already exposed and I haven't dealt with because I'm just going to keep worshiping. That's offensive in a particular way to the Holy Spirit. Because I'm pretending something that I'm not. So saints, more is going on for good in your heart when you come to church regularly and consistently. It's not so a pastor's ego isn't bruised by empty seats. And secondly, don't come to church in chains. As your heart soars and prays, make sure your mind grows in understanding. Make sure your feet grow in swiftness in the direction of his commands. It is just the only way to stay free, to stay safe, and to stay clean for you and all those you love. Everyone said... When you said amen, what you were saying was, you know that thing about coming to church, Pastor Don? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing that. That's what amen means, right? Try it again. And everyone said? Amen. Well, that's encouraging. Let's pray.